Again, it's good to see each of you this morning, and if you have a copy of God's Word, if you will, turn with us to Romans to begin with in just a few moments. I'm going to read in Romans chapter 1, and then we will read a few verses in Ephesians, and Lord willing, go back to the book of Acts chapter 2. For the past uh, seven weeks, I have been preaching about the scriptural basis for regenerate church membership, in other words, being a church member, a local church member, because we have been saved, truly regenerated and converted and saved by God's grace. We have seen in the first couple weeks the reality of the universal church. There are people who are a part of the church that are not here with us locally this morning. They are saved. They'll meet all around the world in various various places. Some will not have buildings like we have. Some will meet out in the open air. But they are a part of the church because they have been saved by God's grace. But our focus has been primarily on local church membership. I have shared with you my burden for that. And I think given a biblical basis but also a factual basis about our local church, and about many who identify as Christians who have for years and even decades have chosen not to identify with his local church. That is a biblical contradiction and one that must be addressed. And our purpose is, is to look at Westland or Baptist Church through the Scriptures, not to judge or to critique other local churches. Our responsibility is here with us, here in our local assembly. For a couple of weeks, we did an aerial survey of the book of Acts, looking at where the local church appeared, what they were doing, how they carried out worship, different aspects, missions, uh, conflicts. We just did an aerial view of that for a couple of weeks in the book of Acts. Then we preached about biblical conversion, which is the only way to truly be a part of the church. You're not physically born into the church. You have to be born again. You have to be regenerated to be a part of the local church. And then we looked at over 30 passages in the New Testament where the two words, one another, are brought to light. Love one another. Pray one for another. Forgive one another. Exhort one another. Provoke one another unto love. We looked at over 30 passages that had those one another passages there. And then we ask ourselves, how can a Christian obey those commands without being a part of the local church? And the answer is, they can't. You cannot obey those commands without being a part of the local church. Last Sunday, we looked at the body of Christ, the church as the body of Christ, one of the most powerful metaphors in the New Testament about the church. There are many, but the body of Christ, and we just just scratched the surface. We didn't really go very deep, but just scratched the surface of what it means to be the body of Christ. This morning, I want us to look at the gospel and the church. The gospel and the church. And see from the Word of God how the gospel is interwoven with another metaphor called the bride, where the church is called the bride of Christ. 
And the gospel is interwoven with that very intimately and very particularly. So we're thinking this morning about two particular, uh, two particular important truths, the gospel and then the metaphor of the bride of Christ. I don't know that I'll get far enough to cover both of these this morning, but that is what we're looking at, how a gospel-centered, a gospel-oriented church, how that connects with the metaphor that Jesus used in Ephesus and in the Ephesian letter about the church being the bride of Christ. Both of these subjects could make up a sermon on their own. As a matter of fact, both subjects could make up months of sermons on their own. But for our purpose this morning, as we are looking at our local church here at West Lenore, these two are very important, the gospel and the bride of Christ. Follow with me in Romans chapter 1, and I want to read verses 14 through 17, and then we'll turn to the metaphor of the bride of Christ in Ephesians 5. Romans chapter 1 and verse number 14. The Apostle Paul speaking, writing, he says, I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So, as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And then in Ephesians chapter number 5 and verse number 25 through verse number 32, where Paul is combining two subjects, that of marriage, the husband and wife relationship, and then using the metaphor of the church as the bride of Christ. Ephesians 5, verse number 25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for it, that He might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the Word, that He might present it to Himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. In the passage in Romans, Paul is presenting the gospel. In the passage in the book of Ephesians, Paul is presenting the metaphor of the bride of Christ. In the gospel in Romans, Paul is telling us that God gave His Son for us. 
In the book of Ephesians, Paul is telling us again that Christ gave Himself for the church. The gospel and the church are inseparable. When you separate the gospel from the church, you have no church. When you separate the church from the gospel, you have no gospel. They go hand in hand. And that's what I want us to think on for a few moments this morning, on a gospel-centered church. People often ask, what kind of church is, and then they'll name a church. What kind of church is this church? Oh, they have a strong this program, or they have a strong that program, or they identify them by some type of denominational cliches that we have picked up over the years. Uh, They are contemporary, or they are old-fashioned, or they are this, or they are that. None of that stuff is in the Word of God. What is in the Word of God is that the church is to be a representative and a witness of the gospel, even in the fact that as a husband gives himself for his wife, Christ gave Himself for the church. That is the gospel, the giving of Christ Himself for our salvation. Now that's a very, very shallow part of it, and we'll talk about more about that in a moment. But the two go hand in hand. I am confident this morning that when I say most of us think that Westonor Baptist Church is a gospel-centered church, I'm confident when I say that most of us think that. If you were asked that, if someone were to ask you, is Westonor Baptist Church a gospel-centered church, most of us probably would answer yes, because we think that. But let's not assume that we are a gospel-centered church or faithful to the gospel just because we say we are. Because we say we are something is one thing. When we actually live that, it becomes reality. So it is important not just to have something on your shingle, but to be able to live that gospel and to be able to uh, declare that gospel in everything that we do. When I was a lot younger, a lot younger, I used to tie a bath towel around my neck for a cape and jump off the back porch and declare that I was Superman. But that never did work out. I declared it, and I would holler it, and I would shout it. My aunt would hear it, and she would say, There's Rick flying again, but I really never was Superman. Some churches, including ours, may assume that we are a gospel-centered church, but the only way to find that out is to go to the Word of God. Here in Romans chapter 1, if you'll notice, Paul said, I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and the unwise. He said, so much as in me is, is, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you at Rome. And then he goes on and says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. If I were to ask you today, was the Apostle Paul a gospel-centered apostle, you would say absolutely, and the reason you would say that is not because you think that about Paul, but because the Word of God proves that to be so. 
So you and I this morning and our church family should be a gospel-centered church, not because we say we are, but because of what we preach, because of how we live, because of what we witness and testify to is proof that we believe the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. First of all, a definition of the gospel. If you'll notice in the text in Romans, Paul said in verse 2, As much as in me is, I am ready to preach. And he uses the word gospel. He mentions it again in verse number 16, that he's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. He will use the word repeatedly throughout the book of Romans and other Gospels. The word there, gospel, is from the Greek word euangelizo, is where that comes from. And the the basic meaning of the word is good, merry, glad, or joyful news. That's what it means, the joyful news. It refers to news that makes the heart glad. But this word that Paul is using here in the Greek translated gospel in our English language, that is not just a word that he came up with or invented. It's a word that has a deep heritage even in the Old Testament. If you remember Isaiah 52, 7, Isaiah said, How beautiful, you remember, are the feet of them that bring good news or declare glad tidings or bring good news. That's the same mindset. That's the same thought. The basic meaning of the word brought out of the Old Testament and brought about here in the New Testament is the announcement of a good message. If a doctor came to examine a sick person and afterwards declared that problem was gone or that problem had been cured, that would be the word that they may use. Good news. The doctor said the sickness is gone or the sickness is no longer there. In ancient days when soldiers went out to battle. People waited. They didn't have technology like we have today. And they waited for reports to come back about the outcome of the battle. I remember my dad has told me often about when you saw in back during World War II, back out on the rural routes and out where the farmers live, when the mailman, who now comes to your door about every day to deliver something, but back then, if the mailman came up your driveway, or worse than that, if a telegraph officer from Western Union came up your driveway, you imagined as a parent or a family member the sad message that you was about to receive about your loved one that had been killed in the battle. But this word is a word about good news, and that is the gospel, declaring good news. The gospel is about Jesus Christ. If you give your testimony tomorrow to somebody and say, I got saved back in 1970, or I I got saved last week, or I came to Christ last week, the Lord saved me last week, or you gave your life to Christ. If you say that to your neighbor, you are bearing witness about Jesus. What you're doing is you're bearing witness about what Jesus has done for you. But that is not the gospel. Listen very carefully. When I tell you that I got saved as a nine-year-old boy at my home church, I am bearing witness about what Christ did for me. He saved me, and I'm giving you that witness. But that is not the gospel. The gospel is not about me. The gospel is not about you. The gospel is about Jesus Christ. 
When you share the gospel, you are telling sinners about Jesus Christ, that He is the only begotten Son of God, that He is the promise of Messiah, that He is the only way of salvation, that He alone lived a perfect and sinless life, that He alone bled and died for our sins on the cross. People will stand all day and listen to mine and your testimony because the conviction of mine and your testimony is minimal at best. What the sinner does not want to hear is that he is sinner, that he's a sinner, and that the only answer to his sin is this man, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. A gospel-oriented church is a church that declares Jesus above everything else. We worship Jesus above everything else. We tell His story more than we tell our story. We magnify Him more than we do us. We glorify Him more than we do anything or anybody. In other words, as Paul wrote to the Colossian church, that in all things He might have the preeminence. I love to hear your testimony. I love to hear people tell me when they were saved and when they came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. I love to hear that. But all of our testimonies take a back seat to the story of Jesus Christ. Do you understand this? You would have no testimony if it were not for the gospel. And the gospel is not about what you did the gospel is about what Christ did for you and for me on the cross. In a sermon preached that I heard preached years ago, probably in the early 80s, out of Romans 1, 14 through 17, Dr. Joel Gregory, who has been one of my preaching mentors for years, wrote this about the gospel. He says, and I quote, Too many of us, the word gospel has become cozy, and has a familiar ring. We believe the gospel. We preach the gospel. We sing about the gospel. Yet many of us have overheard the gospel. That is, we have heard the very term gospel so many times that it now is a vague term without any definite content. He goes on to say the gospel ought to be a precise thing that informs us and motivates our lives. The gospel places us under an obligation when we understand the power of God it reveals. End quote. He's exactly right. I think, personally, the word gospel is used more in pulpits than any other word, and it's never used in the right content in which it should be used. It's just one of them words that we throw in a sermon or throw in a lesson or speak about because it's a biblical term. It sounds good, but you can say the word all day without ever knowing what it really is. You know, I don't know when, and I hate to even bring this word up, but you remember years ago, I don't know when this first got popular, but everything was awesome. Everything was awesome. That become a big word. The word awesome really should be reserved for God alone. But everybody was awesome. You go get ready to check out at the, at the checkout counter. Back when they used to say, you want paper or plastic? Y'all remember those days? And you'd say, I want plastic. That's awesome. They'd say, no, that's not awesome. That's just a, a choice between paper and plastic. The word became so familiar that it lost all of its meaning. 
a gospel-oriented and a gospel-centered church protects the meaning of the word gospel. We guard that. We use that as a sacred word. We don't use it lightly. We don't throw it out as a cliche. We don't make jokes about it or fun about it. We understand the significance of the fact that a bunch of sinners like us that were under the wrath of God Thank God one day we got good news from a far country and that was that God had sent His only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in Him would have everlasting life. That is our message here at Wessonor Baptist Church. And that's the only message that we have is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Preacher, it's your place to preach conservative politics. No, it isn't. That's why I don't. Some preachers feel it is their calling to preach liberal politics and wake everybody up to everybody's rights and social standings. No, it's not. And that's not what God has called them to do. The Bible said that the preachers are called to preach the gospel. What did our Savior, who is the gospel, what did He do when He came? He came preaching the gospel. He came bringing to us the good news that there was salvation for sinners. Every generation, every generation must pick up their Bibles, open their Bibles, and make sure that we understand the gospel and that we believe the gospel. West Lenore needs to do the same this morning. I know you, say, you, you probably think, preacher, I got it. I got it. I promise you, we don't have it like we need it. We must keep our Bibles open and understand it and read it and declare it and present it to a lost world. And if we do those things, we must rediscover the gospel afresh. And the message of the gospel and the gospel itself must be declared first to our families and then to our friends and enemies and then to the culture in which we live. Why do you say that, preacher? Because Paul just told the Romans that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Your testimony to your salvation is not the dynamic that brings people to Christ. Our music is not the dynamic that brings people to Christ. My methodology of preaching is not the dynamic that brings people to Christ. The literature that you give people and the opinions that you give people, that is not the dynamic that brings people to Christ. The dynamite, the dynamic of it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Fanny Crosby wrote it years ago, May we sing it till we see Jesus face to face. Tell me the story of Jesus. Write on my heart every word. Tell me the story most precious, sweetest that ever was heard. A gospel-oriented church. So what is the gospel? Look at Romans 1.1. Paul says in the first verse, if you have your Bible open there, he calls it the gospel of God. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated under the gospel of God. That means God is the author of the gospel. And it also means God is the owner of the gospel. The church does not uh, owned the gospel. The church did not create the gospel. The gospel was created by our Creator God, 
who created the gospel. He made the gospel. In Romans 1.9, he calls it, if you'll notice there, the gospel of his Son. If God is the author and the owner of the gospel, then Jesus, his Son, is the person of the gospel. You take Jesus out of the gospel, there is no gospel. He's the person of the gospel. He's not only the person of the gospel, He's the content of the gospel. He is what the gospel is all about. So clearly in the mind of the Apostle Paul, clearly in the mind of the Apostle Paul, if the church at Rome is going to be a gospel-oriented church, if the church at Corinth and Galatia and Ephesus and Philippi, if these churches are going to be gospel-centered churches, they have to focus on the fact that the gospel belongs to God. He's the author of it and the owner of it. And the gospel is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the content. He's the message. He's the very heart of it. You take Him out of the gospel, it's like taking breath out of your lungs or blood out of your veins. Christ is the gospel. That's why them apostles, when they went out to preach, they didn't preach on how to build a church. They didn't preach on how to, how to raise uh, your garden to glorify God. They didn't preach on how to be happy while you're living in sin. They preached Christ and Him crucified. When Paul went to the church at, or went to the city of Corinth, he said, I came to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Christ is the person of the gospel. God is the owner, the author of the gospel. Turn with me, if you will. Turn back to Acts chapter 2 for just a moment. Acts chapter 2. And beginning in verse 22, this is Peter's sermon on Pentecost. And I want, I want to read this. I'm not going to get to the bride till, till next, next Lord's Day. I, I can, I'm not going to, I'm just going to, I want to read this. I don't want to skip over this because we're talking about something here that identifies us. And as a church, we must be refreshed and we must declare this message to our families. And, you know, and everybody expects the preacher to know the gospel and the preacher to declare the gospel. Every one of you men who are husbands and fathers, I want to tell you something. You need to know the gospel and you need to be able to tell your children the gospel. That's your responsibility. They ought to hear affirmed in this pulpit what you're teaching them at home. This pulpit should affirm that. And that's why it's not, we just don't come here to hear it the first time. A child should be able to look up at their father and say, Dad, he's, he's preaching exactly what you've been teaching us. He's preaching exactly how you've been raising us and telling us about Jesus. Dad, he just said, he said the very same thing about Jesus that you said about Jesus. That's the way that it must be. But what is the gospel? Well, let's look at Peter's sermon on Pentecost, and I think you're going to see some essential components. There's several in here. I just want to mention a few, and I want you to see if you can hear them, listen for them, look for them as we read verse, two, or verse 22 of chapter 2 of Acts. I'm going to read down through verse 39. Listen if you can see, hear some components of the gospel. Peter preaching, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Isn't it amazing where Peter starts? Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, 
which God did by Him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him, again, we're talking about Jesus, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Verse 24, whom... I don't, I don't need to stop at all the, you understand who Peter's talking about, right? Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. For David speaketh concerning him. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope. Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, or the grave is what he's talking about, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne, he, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption." This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. There you have heard the gospel. Now, verse 37, Now... When they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? These folks are not amazed at Peter's ability to be an orator or Peter's ability to uh, present outlines and slick cliches. They are amazed that he has preached to them Christ. And they said, what must we do? Peter answered them in verse 38, repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the remission of sins, and ye receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Peter preached to them a message that had within it the very components of the gospel. Let me run back through it right quickly. In Acts 2, verse 29 through 39, the gospel is rooted in the fact that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies and that He was the Messiah that was prophesied in the Old Testament. Peter nailed it. That's a part of the gospel. Number two, the gospel focuses on the perfect life and sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. Acts 2, verse 22 and 23, again, Peter nailed one of the components of the gospel. Verse number 24 through verse number 32, a third component of the gospel. He, he magnified and explained the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
Without Christ being the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies of being Messiah, there is no gospel. Without Christ having a perfect and sacrificial life, there is no gospel. If Christ were dead in a tomb this morning, there would be no gospel. Peter is nailing it. Already, number 4, Acts 2, verse 30 through 36, Peter talks about the ascension and the exaltation of Jesus Christ and the fact that He is judge and He will be judged someday when we stand before Him. He's not in a grave, but He's been resurrected. He has ascended and He is right now at the right hand of God the Father. There is no gospel without that. And one of the fifth components in verse 38 of Acts chapter 2 is that the gospel, when you hear it, requires one response and one one response only, and that is that man repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. Now, there's much more to it, but you leave out any of those and you do not have a gospel message. Peter nailed it. You say, how did he do it, preacher? He knew the gospel. He knew the gospel of God. He knew the gospel of Jesus Christ even before Paul wrote it in those terms. So that's a definition of the gospel. Let me finish up back in Romans 1, verse 14 and 15. Church, let's look at the obligation the gospel places on us. Lord willing, next week we'll look at the obligation on individually, but let's look at the obligation that it places on us collectively also as the church of the living God. Paul says, and he's talking personally in verse 14 and 15, I'm a debtor. I'm a debtor. It, It means since I've received this good news and I believe it and understand this good news, Paul is simply saying, how can a man know this and understand this and not feel that indebtedness to tell the world about it and to tell everyone he comes in contact with about it? I am debtor both to the Greeks, barbarians, wise and unwise. The Greeks and barbarians, those two phrases, Greeks and barbarians, wise and unwise, they speak to the culture in which Paul lived. And Paul said, if, if you know the gospel and you believe the gospel and you understand the culture in which you're living, you are obligated, you are in debt, you are obligated to tell the culture and your friends and your family and your enemies, you are indebted to tell them about this good news. The word culture, that word's thrown around everywhere. It means the public lifestyle that that shares a certain mindset. That's a basic definition. The public lifestyle that shares... The same mindset. You see that out here in the, in our, the world culture, right? People, they, they, try to, they try to think alike and act like and they believe. This. Just because people around them think that, they try to think like them, that's supposed to make them intelligent to think like that. It means whatever the culture out there values, what they believe, the language they use and the customs they embrace, that reflects their culture. We, know, we all know about the culture in the world. But can I, can I leave you with this this morning? What about the culture inside Westonor Baptist Church? Do we share the same values? Do we share the same beliefs, the same language? Do we share the same mindset? Well, well, preacher, I think we do, but I think there's a few Democrats in here that don't see what we see, or there's a few Republicans that don't see. I'm not talking about that. I ain't talking about that at all. I'm talking about the gospel. Do we believe what Peter just preached, what Paul has just said? Do we believe that God owns the gospel, that He's the author of it? Do we believe His Son is the person that brought the gospel to this world? 
and the one who is the very content of the gospel? Do we believe that Christ was buried and rose the third day? Do we believe that He was virgin born? Do we believe that at this moment, this same Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father, and that He will be judge of the ages, and that one day He shall return for His church? Do we believe that only His sacrifice and only His atoning death can save a man from sin? What about, the, what about our culture in here? What about our beliefs, the language we use, and the things we share in common? You can tell whether the world believes the culture that they're in because they'll start living like their culture. And you can tell when people in here believe what they say they believe because they will live like it. So when you've got people who walk aisles and shake preachers' hands and say they have trusted Christ and get baptized, and then they walk away from the church and do not live what they have professed and believed, that means they have rejected the gospel culture that is in the church. And I use that word not in the worldly sense, but in the sense they disbelieve the values and the mindset and the truths that the Bible says about the gospel. It's not because they have backslidden. It's not because they are carnal. It's not because they are just lazy. It's because, for the most part, they are unconverted and have never believed the gospel. And that's where we are. We have trouble believing that and understanding that. Preacher, it hurts me to think that people could actually be like that. Well, let me share this, and it'll hurt you worse. Not only do they believe that, they're going to die and go to hell believing that. I can't think of anything worse than dying and going to hell lost than dying and going to hell thinking you're saved. That's tragic. Only the gospel can change that. So that's what I'm talking about. When I talk about the culture of Western Orr Baptist Church, I'm talking about our values and beliefs and language and mindset based on the gospel, the components that I just talked about. What that means is when we gather for worship, when we gather for a wedding, when we gather for a funeral, or when we gather for fellowship, or whatever we do, church, this has got to be first and foremost about Christ. It's got to be. It's got to be about Him. He's the reason. He's, the re He's what makes everything worth what it is. Our doctrine can be biblical, our theology correct, and as we're going to do here in the weeks and months ahead, when we draw up our church membership and along with that will come a new church covenant and, and a statement of faith, we can have all of that down. And, and the men that are working with that, I'm sure when that comes to you, it's going to be as near the Word of God as possible uh, there's going to be things drawn from Baptist history, things drawn from people who made mistakes and those who did it right. We're going to take our time and do this the best. It'll not be perfect because men will do it. But we can have all of that to the very best that we can possibly present it. But if we fail to live that truth in a world that doesn't know God, it's nothing but ink on a paper. And it means nothing speaking to His church in Laodicea, Revelation 3.17, Jesus said this, Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, 
And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. The problem was not that Laodicea. The problem was not what they believed doctrinally. The problem was what they had become personally. It's not enough that the preacher and a few church leaders be gospel-centered and gospel-oriented. It's not enough that the music of a choir be gospel-centered and gospel-oriented. It's not enough that the Sunday school teacher be gospel-centered and gospel-oriented. It's not enough that the people in the pew expect the preacher to keep it that way, and then people who are a part of that local church decide to live in that culture rather than living in a gospel-centered culture. That's not right. We are only a body that glorifies Christ when each of us commit afresh and anew by God's grace and strength to live the very gospel that we believe. So the test of a gospel-centered church is not on paper. The test of it is in practice. And as I said a while ago, I want to go ahead and tell you what will be written on paper in the weeks and months ahead will be much easier to embrace than for you and I to actually live that. And we must prayerfully and scripturally reconsider everything we believe and everything we do. Nothing, and I repeat, nothing is gained by merely repackaging the same old stuff to make it more attractive to outsiders. That's not what we're here to do. We're here to honor the Lord and glorify Him. And I can't think of anything that glorifies God more than the gospel. He authored it. He owns it. His Son came to bring it to us. He's the person of it, the content of it. And all we do to glorify Him and His Son, He's glorified. Let me close with these words. A.W. Tozer, I know some of the preachers and those who students of Scripture will know that name. Others of you may not. But A.W. Tozer, he was an American pastor and author. He lived... 1897 until 1963. I figured it up this morning. He was 66 when he died, so I forgot that right quickly because that happens to be my age, but if I've done my math right. But he wrote these words, and this expresses my heart more than anything I could possibly say. Listen to what he wrote. I quote, A widespread revival of the kind of Christianity we know today in America might prove to be a moral tragedy from which we would not recover in a hundred years, end quote. You understand what Tozer was saying? If all we want to do is ask God to revive what we're doing, Tozer is saying, if all we get is a revival of what we're doing, it may be the worst thing to ever happen to us. We don't need a revival of the old-time way. I just lost a hundred friends, if I had that many left anyway. We do not need a revival back to the days like it used to be. That could be the, the greatest tragedy ever hit the church. What we need is a revival to the truth of God's Word. The truth of God's Word. Not a revival back to like it was. Not a revival to how it was in the 80s or in the, in the, in the 70s. Or the, that's, not, that's what Tozer is saying. Tozer is saying, when I look at Christianity, we don't need God to revive us back to what we think we ought to be. We need God to refresh us 
to exactly what the Word of God says we should be. That's the revival I'm praying for. I'm not praying about a five-night meeting where a bunch of people come to the altar and get up and feel good about nothing changing in their life. I'm not interested in that. I've been down that road many years, and you see what that's produced. But oh, what could happen to a church that would return to a biblical gospel and put it in practice not only in the pulpit and in the Sunday school class, in the choir and in the pews, but in our homes and in our lives. Oh, how God would be glorified and God would be honored. I have already placed myself years ago in a position where I can live without the meetings and without the approval of others. I am in a position now, by God's grace, where I can exist without all of that stuff. I can exist with seeing other churches do other things where numbers increase and all of those things. I, that doesn't bother me any longer. There was a day that it did. But by God's grace, I'm in a position now, and only by God's grace, and I can only stay there by God's grace, that that doesn't bother me anymore. But may I never be in a position where I'll be content with being a preacher or a part of a local church where the gospel becomes nothing but a cliche and a secondary message and we no longer live it or care about it and we're all just sitting here waiting for the Lord to call us home and have no intentions of ever glorifying Him by proclaiming the gospel through His Son. I can't live like that and neither can we. May God work a work of repentance and revival in each of us. Only a gospel-centered church will survive what we're facing today and what is coming. Only that. Everything else, everything less, will be swallowed up and consumed by the culture. And could I say, Amen, it ought to be. Remember this, Romans 1.17, The gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Church, if we fail to believe the gospel, if we fail to understand the gospel, if we fail to live the gospel, this church will not survive what is going on now and what will come in the future. These precious children that are sitting here, these young people, will not survive. I challenge this church again. Look at the history of the young people that have come up in that culture that was not gospel-centered. It, it was just church meeting-centered, revivals, those type things. Look at where they are. Now, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Look at where they are. These are your loved ones. These are my loved ones. But if I understand my Bible right, the gospel has the power to prevent that. Amen. And if you think I'm telling you wrong, you go home today, get you out a legal pad or a notepad, and you start writing down the young people who are now young adults and have their own families who have been in these altars multiple times and who have went through. You start writing down the names and look at how many of them no longer even identify with the church. I can't fix all of that. Neither can me and you. But by God's grace and our commitment afresh to the gospel, we can prevent that by being a gospel-oriented church.
please don't leave here today and say, boy, the preacher laid it on them churches. The preacher didn't preach about them churches. The preacher preached about us. It's so easy for me to ride home and tell you what you need to be driving. How Some of you cut your grass at four inches. You know that ain't right. Two's the, you need to cut it at two. I can do that stuff all day. And you can too. It means nothing. This is about us. God in His love and grace put us together. I don't know why, but here we are. Right? Here we are. I didn't get up one morning when I was 12 years old look in the mirror and say, someday I'm going to be preaching at Weston Orr Baptist Church on the corner of Abington and Fairview Drive in the year 2022. If you'd, I, I didn't even know there would ever be a 2022, but here we are. And here's the gospel. What I've preached this morning must be embraced, believed, and practiced. Anything less, anything different means we may be a group of people who meet together to do good things, express our religious preferences, enjoy our social fellowship, support good causes, and appear to everybody else to be one of the best churches on the corner. But that doesn't make us a gospel-centered church. What that makes us is a boy with a towel around his neck thinking he's something that he's not. I want to be his church that would glorify God.